Hi, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, Senior Director at CFGI, where I, help, where I help my clients with their most important accounting and finance matters. This is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. So welcome to Behind the Numbers. Today, we're going to be talking about exit planning preparedness. And my guest today is Paul Vesoki, who is the president of Stony Hill Advisors. Paul, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you. Paul, tell the audience, if you would, please, a little bit about who you are in Stony Hill, and then we'll dive in. Sure. Um, well, I'm the president and founder of Stony Hill Advisors. We uh, are an M&A or mergers and acquisitions advisory firm, uh, working primarily with small business owners. Um, we work in, in the lower mid-market, which is defined basically as businesses more than $5 million in revenue. Um, and in that category, we help them find a way to access the wealth they've created, uh, usually over many, many years, 30, 40 years even, um, and, and in order to retire. If they can't get that wealth, that's it's hard for them to ever, ever leave behind the company and move on to retirement. Yeah, so we were talking before we went on the air here about the, the preparing for the silver tsunami, right? The retirement of boomers and business owners. And you started to mention some statistics before we had to go live. Why don't you talk about that? What, what is this coming silver tsunami, Paul? Right, right. This is based on uh, the demographics of the uh, Census Bureau. Um, around 6 million businesses, small businesses in the U.S., uh, are with two or more employees are owned by people 55 years and older. 70% of them are owned by 55 years and older. So that's more than 4 million of those businesses. If they're 55 now, over the next 10 years, that's a lot of people needing to access that wealth and make that transition. And thus, we potentially have a silver tsunami of retiring uh, business owners who may not ever sell their business and may close it instead. And if you look at the number of employees, if it's just if they were only two million, uh, two people per business, that's still 12 million people that have to transition. So, uh, and, and it's likely 30 to more, 40 million of those people uh, working in this this segment of the marketplace. So, there's a lot of people that are going to be impact, impacted by this silver tsunami. Yeah. So, very important topic. So, pay attention, folks. Paul, what percentage of companies don't sell, and why? <clears throat> Uh, it's you hear different estimates. It's between twenty and thirty percent is what I've is normally right? heard. Yeah, and and the biggest reason is they're not prepared to sell. Um, if you're looking, if you're trying to sell your business or find someone who wants to take over and run it for you, um, you need to make it available for them to to transition in a smooth and profitable way. If they feel there's a high risk that the business will not continue well, um, they won't touch it, and so. How do you sell it to somebody who sells something that's not saleable, in effect? Yeah. So how do we do that? How do business owners make a saleable business? Um, there's a number of simple things, but you should actually um, work with somebody who's a coach to help you do it. Because, the, and again, in this market segment, <clears throat> the business owner is the business. They've created it. They know how to do everything. They're very confident in their own abilities. And so they're in the driver's seat in so many parts of the business and how can someone buy it and take over when they don't know all the customers, they don't know all the employees, they don't know all the processes, because nothing's prepared, documented, transitioned, internal. So the, the simple answer is make the business independent of you and your business becomes saleable. That, that is something that I think most people probably find to be the greatest challenge because it is their life, it is their, their baby, so yeah. to speak, and uh, they're, they're working in the business day to day. Correct. So it's, 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 it, there are two main factors that I've found. Uh, one is the 
I'll call it the ego factor, that I know I can do it. I don't know if anyone else can do it as well as me. And the second is, if I hire someone to do what I'm doing, that's money out of my pocket because I'm the owner. The profits are mine. Yeah. So if I uh, invest back into the company to hire employees to do what I'm doing so that it's independent of me, that's, I'm spending a lot of money. Now, I can make the case that when you transition, the business value goes way up, and that money you invested to bring on people to do the documentation and training and all the aspects of making the business more saleable comes back and in, in, increase value and many times over. I mean, 10 times over. Yeah. So it's about de-risking the business yes. and in, in valuation speak, <clears throat> business generally is uh, valued based upon the present value of future benefit streams, usually yeah, cash flows. Exactly. And those cash flows are brought back to today's dollars at a risk rate. And all the topics that we're talking about here impact that risk rate. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, the biggest factor, the risk. So let's talk a little bit about valuation and, and realistic expectations. Uh, are you finding that most sellers think their businesses are worth generally a lot more than uh, they may necessarily be to a buyer? Yes, absolutely. Um, because they, they know they're comfortable with the business as is. And as I said, the risk factor comes into play and discounts that value that they think in their mind uh, they've cr created. So, um, and then they use hearsay information from other people. Oh, I sold my business for X, so I should get that much. So for a lot of reasons, the business owners don't get valuations done, so they have a realistic expectation. Yeah. Is there a range of multiples that is kind of a heuristic rule of thumb for, for sellers to achieve? Well, it, the most valuations are a multiple of cash flow. And... The cash flow of the business, the, the, the greater the cash flow, the higher the multiple. So it's a multiplying process. Uh, a business is doing half a million in, in cash flow will be a, a maybe a multiple two to three. A business doing five million in cash flow, EBITDA, will get six to eight times. So you've increased the value of the business by increasing the, value, the profit, but you've also got a higher multiple. A multiplier effect. Yeah, Paul, for the people who are watching and listening and want to learn more about you, how can they contact you? Um, well, first, my email address is paul at stonyhilladvisors, uh, S-T-O-N-Y-N-O-E. Some people try to put the E in it. Um, and then my phone number is 267-535-2551. Yep. And for those who are watching, the logo is right there on the bottom third yes. of the screen. So l let's talk just a little bit more um, <clears throat> on the valuation aspect of it. And we talked about cash flow. How many business owners are you finding that are managing their business day to day with this idea of not paying Uncle Sam taxes? And then when it comes time to sell, explaining away the fact that no, the business really is profitable. <laughs> Most. Um, and somewhat understandable. But if you're now getting to that 55-year-old stage, you should start thinking about how do I make the business more valuable, which means make my financial reporting more exact, more correct. Don't include a lot of the uh, expenses that are questionable. Yeah. So in other words, you don't, you don't want to be wasting time in, in discussions talking about normalizing adjustments and things like that. Exactly. Because any question that, that a buyer raises is one more notch in the discount. Yep. No, completely agree. Talk a little bit about family <laughs> dynamics. I know this is a sensitive issue, but a lot of times these smaller businesses have family members who are on the payroll, may or may not really be contributing in that capacity. Um, what's, what's your counsel for business owners there? Um, well, 
transition from generation to generation, by the way, it's, it's much less than it used to be, but it's, it's something that should be treated as an arm's length transaction. Uh, if you expect your children to come over, you know, whoever, and a, a, a cousin, doesn't matter, and within the family, just take over and fund your retirement from the profits of the business, that's a tremendous risk because recessions, uh, catastrophes, changes in the marketplace, all can affect that. And you have no control once you've left the business and expect this other generation to fund your future. So it's better to make the transition arms like now. That includes selling it to your, to your family members, but don't just give it to them. Yeah. And if you've got family member on the payroll currently and they're not really doing the function that uh, we'll call it an independent party might do, what's your advice for cleaning up the financial statements around those kinds of positions? Well, you, you, again, when you're looking to make the transition, any buyer is going to look at your org, org chart. And if, if they go down the list and find out people who are getting paid for uh, functions that are not necessary, they'll either have to get them off the payroll or... Uh, you know, it gets to be adjusted because they, you can't count that as an, uh, a reasonable expense. Yeah, so take a hard look at that. So when we talk about preparedness, how long does the process take? How, what, what's the, the timeline to, for getting a business ready? Uh, I recommend three to five years. Uh, you know, you can start longer, you know, way in advance of five years, but you should at least get started no later than three. And who are the key people that business owners should be talking to in preparing for this? I mean, I imagine you work with a team of advisors. Correct. Um, certainly, it's someone who's doing exit planning like us, yeah. then the, their accountant becomes uh, a party to the process of making sure the financial records are proper, uh, including audits in some cases, because that's the purest way of, of uh, determining a financial picture. Yeah. Their attorney, uh, and sometimes uh, that uh, also includes estate planning attorneys, because at the same time that you're preparing a business for for transition to someone else, you need to be prepared for your transition to your next life. And what's, what are you going to do with the wealth that you now can access out of your company? To, what's your investment plan? Yeah, let's touch on that just a little bit in just a couple of minutes we have left in this segment about what what's next, you know, day one after sale. Because I hear from so many people in the exit planning, investment banking community that when they're talking with would-be sellers, part of the biggest hesitation is that they the sellers don't know what they're going to do after they retire. And right. they always add with, my spouse doesn't want me around the house full-time anyway. So talk a little bit about that from your psychologist perspective, because let's face it, when we're working with clients, it's always a little bit psychology as well. Um, well, one of the things, and, and I'll make mention of an organization you and I both belong to, Executive Leaders for Advisory Boards. You, you sell your company, you can still provide good advisory services to other business owners because you've been there and you've done that. And that's a, that's a, a good way to transition and make yourself still uh, involved and important and, and, and fulfilled uh, uh, mentally. Yeah. So that's just one example. But you need to think about what, else, what can I do that I like doing and uh, you don't need to worry about the income so much, typically, if, you get a, if your business is valuable. But you need to be worry about, does it make me, uh, this is something I want to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Good time for a quick commercial break. We're going to come back after the break, and we'll talk a little bit more about eLab that you mentioned. But for now, don't go anywhere. We're going to pay a few bills, and we'll be right back on Behind the Numbers. I work 
13 hours a day, six days a week. So when I'm off the clock, I gotta get stuff done. So when I need a snack, I need something healthy, tasty, and easy to eat. Like wonderful pistachios without the shells. They're protein powered, delicious, and great on the go. And that's perfect for me. Thanks, a woman without a lot of time. Whether you're a gourmet cook or just want to eat like one, visit Rostelli Market Fresh, your home for the freshest locally sourced ingredients to please everyone who loves great food. Our organic meats, quality seafood, and free-range poultry are cut fresh to order. Chefs create culinary-inspired prep foods made fresh every day, which pair nicely with our vast selection of fine wines and spirits. Choose from handmade pastas, artisan cheeses, organic produce, and grocery items, all from the finest purveyors. Rostelli Market Fresh, from our family to yours. RVN TV is a platform for people of any industry to share their story. Over 285,000 viewers are tuning in to RVN TV shows monthly. We guarantee a great experience that you'll be sharing with everyone you know while increasing your personal and company's brand awareness. But what is your brand? According to Forbes, it's a combination of your logo, your product, your design and feel, and your personality. Did you know that aside from being a guest, we offer even more opportunity to boost your brand? Adding your company logo and website on screen during your interview will allow viewers to recognize your brand instantly. Incorporating images and videos Hi everyone, welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about exit planning preparedness with Paul Vasoki, who is the president of Stony Hill Advisors. And before the break, Paul, you mentioned an organization that we do both belong to called ELAB, or Executive Leaders for Advisory Boards. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what that organization does? Okay, great. Um, the ELAB was started to uh, allow a group of us, there's I think 35 members now and, and growing, to provide our expertise as advisors to small business owners. Um, these are uh, private companies, so they're not board of directors per se, but they are key people that the business owner can turn to because by themselves, they are it. They have no advisors typically, and this is one way we can help them. Uh, it does dovetail with our exit planning work because in some of the cases, the business might be in that five-year stage looking to exit. So it can help uh, us direct the conversation in that way. But it's more than that. It's it's all about helping a business, whatever their their principal issues are. It could be adding products, growing the business, personnel, uh, benefit plans, all kinds of things that we in our group have experience with. Yeah, and the advisors also represent what I would call larger businesses rather than just what we're calling the smaller businesses here too. Right. So, uh, And nonprofits. Yeah, so a typical kind of a middle market, and that's defined loosely. So however you're defining it, a middle market type of a business uh, is a candidate for eLab. And like yes. you said, it's it's growth orientation, but it's also for companies that have hit kind of a, a roadblock or a fork in the road and wondering what their next move is going to be necessarily. So. Um, how can people get uh, in contact with ELAP, Paul, if they want to learn more about that? Well, there's a website. It's executiveleadersforadvisoryboards.com, I believe, or .org. .org, I think. .org, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, uh, that's one way. And um, certainly contact me or David. Uh, yeah. We can help. 
Yep, exactly. So let, let's jump back into a little bit more about uh, the, the primary topic here about exit planning preparedness. How important is the availability of capital or market timing in the exit planning process? Uh, it's, it's very important, and, and we're in a unique period right now. Uh, first of all, uh, we, the last recession was now more than 10 years ago, and the historical um, cycle of, of recessions in this country is nine years was the longest one before now in the, over the last 60 years. So we're, we're, we're past the point where we should be expecting that. Thankfully, it's not yet on, around the corner, but you read many stories about it. So the recession is one aspect that's going to impact the uh, capital available. Um, the other is interest rates are still very low. So um, any viable business that wants to acquire can get access to the funding they need in, in the markets, uh, through the lending markets. Um, and most of what we do is uh, business to business transactions. They're strategic in nature. So the acquirer is another company that has a, a bank credit line typically, and they can use that access to acquire this other company that's looking to transition. So it's, it, it's more strategic and, and it's, and also ben, lends to uh, higher values in many cases because the um, uh, synergies of, of one company merging with another uh, and, and taking advantage of the benefits they get from that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about size. Um, size matters um, from the context yes. that not every advisor works with every business. And you mentioned that you're working with what we'll call the smaller businesses right. at the lower end of the middle market. Talk a little bit about the the fit, if you will, between the, the people that you serve and, and how you work with them? Uh, good question. Um, each business is unique, and uh, we try to get to know the business, and it's also similar to the exit planning process. We work with the business owner. It's not just about, okay, you want to sell? I can find a buyer, and, and it's all about the transac transaction itself. We, we try to coach the process and get the business ready and, and increase the value. So as a boutique firm, um, we're different than the big investment banks. They have more resources, but they don't give you the same care and attention that we think we do. Yeah, and I guess for a lot of the larger banks, the, the clients that you're serving probably aren't, they don't even give them the time of day. Right? They don't. Yeah, and like I said, it size matters, and there's different providers for different businesses. Let's talk about the, the go-to-market strategy. How do you conduct the process? Um, the process is, uh, uh, it's a, we call ourselves intermediaries and, and matchmakers. So we get to know our client and then we find the strategic, likely strategic acquirer by direct contact. So we'll, we'll do our research, identify potential candidates, contact them directly, certainly under non-disclosure, and then see if there's an interesting uh, fit. And then we start the dialogue between the buyer and the seller. So it is a step-by-step -step process. Uh, and in many cases, we'll try to get as, as many potential buyers as possible so that there's some competition, um, sometimes uh, referred to as a, an auction. But it's, um, in all, it's not true in all cases because certain businesses don't have a lot of potential buyers because they're unique. They might yeah. be a, a niche of their own. So, but we fit the scenario to that particular business that we're representing. Yeah. So if someone's coming to you and they're telling you that they're they're thinking of selling, have you have you turned people away and told them they're not ready yet? Oh yes. Um, and and you know it, it's 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 both not ready, and 
they're, they're not, how do I put it? Their, their profitability, their cash flow is not sufficient to make it a really good exercise for them. They should grow the business more. So it's, that's being not ready as well in terms of the business itself. Yeah. So are you able to help them with, with that advice in terms of the execution and what that looks like for them? Yes. I, um, I, through my networking, I, this is an actual story from about two weeks ago. A uh, gentleman I got to know through networking, uh, he called me about uh, wanting to help his business uh, grow so he can get to a higher value. And he's, he was 45, I think. And I coached him on what he needs to do to get the business to the level that he's looking for. He wants to get at least $10 million when he sells the business. And he has time at 45. And we talked about the various things that he can be doing to um, grow the business and de-risk at the same time. Yeah. Let's dovetail that just a little bit in, in terms of in, in talking to the audience. Um, what's been your experience in where business owners and sellers are, are missing the mark? Where are their blind spots? So in other words, what, what, what should people be focusing on right now in preparation for this event that may be years down the road? Um, well, it all gets back to um, running the business in a way that you can delegate and, and document and put in pra- uh, processes that uh, operate on their own so that you don't have to do everything and oversee everything. Uh, you know, having purchases that can be uh, authorized to a certain level, uh, and then not everything goes through you, or hiring, you don't have to interview every employee or Customers, you don't know, have to know every customer. So you have to, that's a discipline you have to implement and it take time because you don't, you don't want to just cut off my, my best customer. I can't talk to you anymore. My, uh, I have a new salesman and taking over for that. You want to do that on a gradual basis. Yeah. A lot of times I'm, I'm working with or talking to clients and prospects who are telling me that they know who their buyers are in their niche businesses they've networked over the years, and they've got, in, in, they believe in their pocket, a handful of potential buyers. Uh, is that a good idea or a bad idea to be cultivating these buyers on a casual basis, Paul? Um, it's not a bad idea, but you, I find many times they... Um, they think that the buyer that they've been speaking with is more serious than they really are. And when they approach us for uh, helping them find a buyer and they say, I have so-and-so who has told me he'd be willing to buy my business, I said, ask them to make an offer. And they never do because it's all casual. It's not, it's not a real investigative process. They don't really know the profit. They don't really know the business. They just like what they hear. Yeah. So what can somebody do in that circumstance where they're having those kinds of casual conversations to assess, short of asking for an offer, how can they kind of look somebody in the eyes and know if they're telling them the truth? Um, well, they can ask us to help investigate whether that's a good fit. Uh, I had a, a, an occasion not too long ago where uh, they, were, they actually had an offer. This is, this is the type of things that happen. They, the, the offer was uh, a three-year earnout, so the the owner had to stay in the business for three years, or could only get his money over a three-year period. The the final, I think, it was fifty percent of the offer, um, but he was only employed for one year. So what happens in the next two years? Is he ever going to get that money? No. So they were kind of doing a bait and switch on him. But so he asked me to investigate the um, uh, the offer itself, and and I gave him some good points on what he should reply, and the, the buyer backed off. Yeah. Paul, for people watching and listening, they want to learn more about you. How can they reach you? Uh, again, my uh, email address is paul at stonyhilladvisors.com. And my phone number is 267-535-2551. So what you just alluded to in that earnout story uh, kind of speaks to what happens after everybody's 
you know, done, done the handshake and you start to paper the deal, so to speak. We've agreed to move forward. Um, what happens and, and why do deals necessarily, uh, not necessarily close once we've gotten to this letter of intent or definitive agreement? Where do things go wrong in the due diligence process? Well, the due diligence process is, is uh, very uh, intensive, and um, things can be discovered that the, the buyer wasn't aware of before the offer was first made. Um, sometimes, and this is, has happened, <clears throat> the process of putting a business on the market and finding a buyer and then negotiating the agreement takes many months. And in one occasion, the uh, business owner thought he had sold the business once he put it on the market, so he stopped working. And the business went downhill. And by the time we got to, to the uh, closing stage, the revenue was down 30%. So the buyer backed off. Yeah. you got to keep the pedal to the metal. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me back in my earlier days as an investment banker working on a transaction for the better part of 18 months, two years. Right before closing, there was an environmental issue that was That's uncovered. another example, yeah. Yeah. And that, that uh, kiboshed the whole transaction. Yeah. Lots of things can pop up. So, and that's again back to exit planning. You can start preparing the business, the due diligence process ahead of time. And if things, with our help, we can point out, well, you got an issue here. We got to fix that or it's going to fail in due diligence. They'll find it. Yeah. So, you know, as a business owner, you may not be aware, but we can give you that insight because we're, we're uh, from looking at it from a different perspective. We're the, we're the outsider. Yeah. On your website, you have uh, what we'll call kind of a white paper. Yes. That, that speaks to business owners. Can you summarize in just a couple of moments here for the audience what that entails and how people can find that if they want to understand more deeply what you're talking about? Great. Yes. Um, well, we mentioned the term silver tsunami. I, I titled it the age wave because in, 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 in pictorially, it's an, it is a tsunami. It's a wave. And that's this baby boom generation moving through this process of retirement. And the white paper discusses the basis for that um, issue coming up, and it talks about ways that business owner can start preparing and and, and the the methods of, of of potentially exiting. And it's not strictly selling, and and there are other good solutions like an ESOP. Uh, there are family transitions if you do it correctly, um, and so on. So there's other methods to to make that exit, but. Um, so I cover all the bases. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to raise that issue because we're focusing specifically here today on the, the selling of a business, but there are other options that, that buyers or, excuse me, sellers can be aware of yes. uh, for their long-term strategic plan. Yeah. So it's on our website. You can click on it and download it. Great. So thanks for sharing that, Paul. And with that, we are out of time here on Behind oh. the Numbers. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, we've been talking about exit planning preparedness today with Paul Basoki, <laughs> who is president of Stony Hill Advisors. My name is Dave Bookbinder, and if you'd like to contact me after the program, you can feel free to reach out. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you like the conversation that you've heard today, please hit the subscribe button so that you're uh, apprised of future episodes as well. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care. This is another great way to showcase your product and